Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel. Tennessee and Texas are the latest states where books have been removed from libraries after being deemed offensive to some. Often these books deal with race, sexuality, and gender. These conversations are happening in Connecticut towns too. A small number of residents have spoken at local board of education meetings about books in school libraries that they believe are inappropriate for particular age groups or books that express a political viewpoint or tackle subjects like police violence or sexual identity. Today, where we live, we talk to librarians about the rise in book challenges. Is this happening in your town? We wanna hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me first on Zoom is Sam Lee. She's chair of the Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee and head of reference services at Enfield Public Library. Now, I want to mention here that my husband also works at the Enfield Public Library, but I invited Sam to talk to us about her role as CLA's chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. And we know that uh, the Connecticut Library Association anecdotally tracks removal or reconsideration requests but it's not a comprehensive number. And given what uh, you only hear about, depending on who's reaching out to you, what, what have you been hearing and, and how do these mirror, if at all, national trends? So what we've been seeing is absolutely a mirroring of the national trends. The titles that have been targeted have been um, BIPOC, LGBT, Jewish authors, and titles covering racial justice and gender ID- identity. Um, We see this as part of the crisis level um, issues that we've been seeing nationally. Uh, I ordinarily deal with a handful of phone calls a year, but that number jumped pretty significantly uh, this fall and winter. So when you're getting phone calls, as you mentioned, who are you hearing from and, and what are the books that are concerning to them? So I hear mostly from public librarians um, since my role with uh, the Connecticut Library Association deals mostly with public librarians, um, the titles that we that have been challenged the most um, in, that I've been hearing about have been um, LGBT titles. You'd also mentioned BIPOC books, so that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. So mm-hmm. whether it's other voices being represented in books or also books by uh, people of color authors? Yes. And so when you're getting calls from other libraries about a particular uh, request from the public about a particular book, you know, how do you counsel uh, them about you know, the process that local towns and public libraries should be following? So most public libraries have a reconsideration policy, um, and that's what uh, that's the process by which patrons can 
uh, submit their complaints about a book or a title. Um, it, sometimes it's a verbal complaint and I get phone calls about that as well. Uh, but the formal reconsideration process involves filling out a form, um, the title in question, what was offensive or upsetting about the book that the patron wants removed, and what are their suggestions for how to, uh, what to do with that title, either completely remove it from the library, relocate it, and, and the like. And normally this follows, um, so once we get this complaint, um, individual libraries will vary as to uh, who reviews it. Sometimes it's a whole committee, sometimes it's administration, um, just the library director or the library board, but then they, they take the consideration, um, the reconsideration request, uh, take a look at its complaints and then figure out what to do with that title. More often than not, the title is retained on the shelves and um, an explanation is given to why that is. I mentioned your chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee and there's a reason that you were drawn to librarianship, Sam. And so when we talk about the freedom uh, to read and what is available to all citizens uh, in our country, talk through some of the decisions of why libraries would keep a book on a shelf. So we balance people's, um, well, We'll go with intellectual freedom first. So intellectual freedom is the right for everybody to um, to have to read and write, read and speak freely, um, and to have unrestricted access to information. Um, that's a responsibility that libraries take very seriously. Um, by having books on the shelves, we are encouraging a free exchange of ideas. Um, that's foundational to a functioning democracy. So our shelves are filled with conflicting books and ideas, and we um, we serve a diverse community, so we have to cater to that. Um, and occasionally, uh, those books that we have on the shelves um, may offend somebody. I started the show talking about Texas and Tennessee, uh, two states where books have been banned. When we look at Connecticut, as we were talking about, there may be more book challenges coming from the public. But as of now, when we think about books being banned in our state, this is something that is rare, Sam? Yes, it is. It's very rare that um, a book is actually banned from the shelves or removed. Um, it might be relocated to a different collection that might be more appropriate, but outright bans happened relatively uh, little. I also had mentioned some of the conversations happening in local communities. The Connecticut Examiner reported recently on a debate in the Haddam Killingworth School District over some parents complaining about state mandated eighth grade health curriculum that now must include gender identity and sexual orientation. But one parent also spoke at a January school board meeting calling for quote, the removal of books addressing sexual orientation from the school library. And that resident Sam went on to describe those books as quote, filthy books. So then what's your sense of how these inflammatory comments are maybe actually generating more formal reconsideration requests in local libraries? Absolutely. The use of incendiary language um, is absolutely sparking more challenges. Um, and they are, it's part of, yes, those, yeah, it, those, it's the use of incendiary language um, that is sparking more challenges, that is getting, uh, that is triggering people to challenge more books. 
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My guest is Sam Lee, chair of the Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. She's also head of reference services at Enfield Public Library. As we talk about book challenges or requests by the public to remove books deemed offensive by some. Now, the American Library Association, or ALA, puts out a list of the top 10 most challenged books each year. YA or young adult author Jason Reynolds is on the 2020 list for two of his books, All American Boys and Stamped. This is what Jason Reynolds said on the Stephen Colbert show in December when he was asked about this list. For those of us who are going through it, for those of us on that list, it's not a badge of honor. People always say, congratulations, you're doing something right. It's like, yeah, but at the same time, there's been access cut for all the young people who might need these books and where they only might get them in schools. You can't take for granted that there may not be a library or bookstore in everybody's community or that there may not be a $20 bill to go and buy the books that they no longer have access to because of these bannings, right? Mm -hmm. Second of all, I just think people should understand that at the end of the day, we as adults, we claim that we want our children to grow up to be better than we are. And in order to do so, they must have the information that we did not have. Sam, did you want to respond to what Jason Reynolds shared, again, as your role, also as a librarian in your community? Absolutely. I agree with everything that he said, that that to remove a book um, because it might be offensive robs children of the opportunity to explore ideas, to um, develop those critical thinking skills that everyone's so uh, keen on developing in children. Um, those books are absolutely necessary for children and to remove them is to rob them of uh, experiences that they otherwise wouldn't have. It, it's a nice safety net um, when there are difficult topics to encounter that seeing them through books is a safer way to do it than living those experiences. Um, it develops empathy for students in a way that uh, television or other media might not. Um, and it's important to have those books there. I mentioned the American Library Association. Joining us now on Zoom is Deborah Caldwell-Stone. She's director of the ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom. Deborah, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. The ALA reported last uh, fall there was an unprecedented number of removal requests being put out. Has it kept up when we look at where we are today? Absolutely. Um, we recorded 330 reports of unique censorship cases between September 1st and December 1st of this year. We're still tallying our data from 2021, but we are seeing uh, another 150 challenges reported to our office in December of 2021 as well. We're well on track to probably double our numbers from 2019 uh, and 2020, um, which were um, around, three, you know, to measure all that, I would tell you that in 2019, the last year when schools and libraries were fully open, we recorded 377 challenges for the entire 12-month year. But right now, just in the fall alone, we're looking at nearly 425 challenges. And it's, uh, we're, as I said, we're still recording data. Well, you talk more about the challenges. What are the particular books that are being challenged in communities? Are they following a certain playbook? Because often I wonder when someone raises a concern about a book, are they actually reading that book? Sometimes they are. 
but we're seeing these days um, the use of social media uh, and organized groups to push challenges in communities. Um, and they often use the same rhetoric across communities. Um, and for example, uh, books dealing with gender, sexual identity, or sexuality are, have long been targets of organized groups that have a philosophy that no young person should know about sex, sexuality, gender identity um, before they're 18. And so we're seeing a framing, uh, and Sam referenced this, um, of books dealing with LGBTQ issues and identities as filthy or inappropriate for minors. Um, and this often is amplified through social media postings, a viral video of an individual complaining at a school board. Uh, an identical complaint will crop up in a community far away. Uh, challenges used to be very localized, uh, but with the internet and with social media and these organized groups, we're seeing them really take off like wildfire this year. For our listeners, if you're seeing similar book challenges in your community, whether it's before your local school board or at your public library, we'd like to hear from you. Our number 888-720-9677. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. And so Deborah, when we think about how public libraries and school libraries should respond to these requests, talk about the legal basis also in these responses. Well, we have the decision of the Supreme Court uh, from 1982, the PICO decision, which held that uh, school boards functioned under the Constitution and the First Amendment. And this goes for public library boards as well, uh, that they can't remove books from the library collection simply because they don't like the ideas in the book or because uh, they uh, don't like the viewpoint expressed by the author or the publisher in the book. Um, with schools, there's a little more discretion, uh, but the school library does uh, have First Amendment, uh, users of the school libraries have First Amendment protections, and that protection is even broader for the public library. So we've had cases where even restrictions that kept the book in the library were overturned as a burden on library users' First Amendment freedoms or a student's First Amendment freedom to browse the public library or the school library, excuse me. Sam, did you want to uh, chime in about uh, how often you may be hearing from school libraries about particular challenges that are coming up recently? Uh, unfortunately, I don't hear as much from school librarians, and that's sort of a function of, of uh, how school libraries and librarians work. Um, often they work in isolation that they don't have other uh, colleagues to talk to regularly about what's going on in their libraries and um, seeing if that's part of a larger trend. Public libraries, I think, um, because we work in a building with other librarians, we're automatically able to fall back on our colleagues' expertise. Um, whereas in school libraries, that isn't always an opportunity available to them. And um, they may feel like they can't reach out for support or help. Um, and they continue to work in isolation and um, sometimes uh, make decisions that are um, self-preserving, self that um, they want to keep their jobs, that these students absolutely need a public, uh, need a school librarian. 
and might not feel comfortable reaching out um, and asking for help. Deborah, I'm wondering if you could respond to what Sam shared. Do you have that that same uh, feeling from working through the ALA? Absolutely. We find that school librarian, well, part of the issue, of course, is that there are fewer school librarians these days than there were a decade ago. Um, and when you have uh, a non-librarian working in the library, they may not even know about the support available through state associations or the national organization. But in, you know, when you work in a small community and you don't have very many resources, it can be very intimidating. Um, even though we promise absolute confidentiality to anyone reporting a censorship incident to our office, uh, we find that many uh, are, are reluctant to do so because they are fearful for their jobs or don't want the community attention. But uh, we, we really do see that uh, we hear mostly from public libraries. When we look at some of our, our overall statistics over time, about 40% of our reports come from school libraries, but we suspect it's much more because there is this silent censorship that takes place that never gets reported, doesn't appear in the local press coverage. Uh, a parent uh, or a group complains to an administrator or principal, and that individual goes straight to the library, pulls the book, sticks it in its their drawer, and it's never heard from again. And access is effectively cut off for the students in that uh, school. Our own uh, Jackie Rabe Tom has pointed out to us uh, here, uh, she's a reporter at Connecticut Public, that looking at the State Department of Education numbers, there's been a 24% drop in school librarians and support staff over the last five years in Connecticut schools. When you hear that, Deborah, how concerned are you about uh, the nature of librarianship in schools in our state, in Connecticut? Uh, I'm deeply concerned for the decline in numbers in school librarians. School librarians do much more than simply catalog books. They foster literacy, a love of reading, um, try to inculcate uh, a lifelong love of reading, um, making all kinds of opportunities for learning and engagement uh, available to students, uh, developing research skills, an understanding of what uh, is uh, a reliable source of information for starters, that media literacy that's so critical these days. Um, so when you don't have a, a school librarian who has gone through the years of education, who understands how to build a collection to serve the needs of a diverse community, uh, and school communities certainly are diverse, um, we're really missing an opportunity to uh, uh, enhance and enrich the education of our young people and equip them to go to uh, higher education, to careers, to the military, uh, whatever their life, wherever their life takes them with the kind of uh, ability to do research, understand different ideas, engage in critical thinking that's so vital to uh, being able to function well today. Before we head to break, and we'll be speaking to a school librarian coming up here on Where We Live, Deborah, you outlined some of the stats of uh, book challenges and how those are rising uh, across the country. But when we think about uh, how these uh, situations are then handled, um, you know, the fact that Sam said earlier that book banning in our state 
has been rare. Are you still concerned about what um, you may and other librarians may encounter in the next few months as these trends continue? Um, absolutely. What we're seeing, too, is an effort in state legislatures to dictate what can be in the library and what librarians can do in school libraries. Um, we are actually tracking uh, legislative efforts to ban any consideration of uh, works dealing with the experiences of BIPOC persons or LGBTQ persons in K through 12 schools in the belief that that somehow is divisive or what you know or uh, harmful to young people but instead what it is is actually a limitation uh, an erasure of marginalized voices from the shelves of our school libraries and even our public libraries um, and we're deeply concerned for this trend and the ability of librarians to address this type of censorship you know we're really uh, you know we're seeing uh, an effort to, in the name of freedom, to erode our liberties and just diminish our democracy, which depends on our ability to uh, speak and read freely without the government telling us what to think or believe. Uh, but we're seeing those trends throughout the United States right now. You're hearing Deborah Caldwell-Stone here on Where We Live, Director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Deborah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Staying with us is Sam Lee, Chair of Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. As we keep talking about these book challenges that are increasing around our country, including in our state. After the break, we talk about how school librarians are responding to concerns from the public over certain books. Is this happening where you live? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm on Zoom today, so apologies if my sound is not as clear as usual. Now, I've been wanting to do a show on growing efforts to remove certain books from libraries after news broke that a Tennessee school board banned Mouse, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Holocaust graphic novel, 
NBC News reported 12 school districts in Texas have removed books based on race, sexuality, and gender since this school year began. We wanted to know if there were similar efforts happening in Connecticut. So I was surprised to find out while preparing for this show that a handful of residents in my town, Suffield, have spoken at local school board meetings as early as December, expressing concern over some books. And a local school board member also expressed his concern and brought up Ghost Boys as an example of a book banned in other states, but available at the local intermediate school. The Suffield Board of Education plans to review its policy on library materials next week, and parents in support of the freedom to read are expected to speak at tonight's board meeting. Now, when members of the public question a book being in a library, how should school library staff and school districts respond? Joining us now on Zoom is Barbara Johnson, library media specialist at Jack Jackter Intermediate School in Colchester, and she's the past president of the Connecticut Association of School Librarians. Barbara, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So you are the past, but immediate, immediate past uh, president of the Connecticut Association of School Librarians until this past July. Uh, what did you see in terms of requests from parents about certain books? And has there been a spike in our state? So yeah, I, I in my tenure as president, it was um, really kind of preparing librarians, making sure that um, we knew what resources were available if and when we needed them. And then really I would concur um, with Sam and Deborah to say, really this fall um, and winter, really we've seen a spike in um, informal requests and then uh, definitely a spike in formal requests um, being filed at the school library and it, at the district level. You differentiated between informal and formal. So informal being someone raises a concern and they just make a comment versus uh, some school districts uh, have these policies, these reconsideration policies. So if uh, a person really wants to formally challenge a book, they would have to fill out a form and there's a whole process out there. Can you describe that for us? Correct. So um, any anyone in, in the town can come in and um, have access to our school library collections, no matter um, the uh, grade level of the school library. Um, and then um, they can formally challenge if your district has um, a selection and reconsideration policy. Um, it would be available to the public on the district website. And usually it's a form that, again, just like Sam said, um, would ask for the title of the material. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, in the library. It can be um, um, any um, material being used in the school. It doesn't necessarily have to be a book. It could be an ebook or um, a website, but it's a formal request of um, why the material, the title of the material, how you heard about the material. So it would be um, relevant whether you heard about this on social media or whether you've read the material yourself and have a, um, a concern for this to be um, reconsidered. Um, and then along with that formal um, form, there's usually a pretty formal process in which that form is then handled, including um, a subcommittee being um, gathered to review that material, read that material, and um, find out how that material was selected and aligned to the curriculum content or age group um, of that library. 
And then once um, that, that consideration process is completed, there's a recommendation um, by that committee to the Board of Ed and Superintendent of uh, what happens to that book or, or educational material. So it's the Board of Education and, and the Superintendent that would have the final say? Um, only if there can't be an agreement. Um, most times um, they take the um, recommendation committee, um, uh, their recommendation uh, to retain, or um, as Sam said, sometimes it's just moved to a different um, genre or age level. Um, and that's sometimes why um, school librarians tend to take these and, and all librarians tend to take these um, reconsiderations very personally and it's a very emotional process because we spend so much time, our best effort, our best research in finding the best materials to represent all of our learners that we really hope that um, our board of eds and our superintendents and administrators who get involved in this, um, this consideration process really take a committee and the librarian's professional opinion into account to say that this absolutely represents um, our readers or a population of um, uh, of our 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 um, our clientele, our our students, our you know that we really need to represent in our library. You're the subject matter experts, and so when I read that statistic earlier from the State Department of Education, there's a 24% drop in school librarians and support staff over the last five years in our state. Uh, concerning to you that uh, when a challenge uh, may be raised formally, that this process may not be followed. Yeah, and so um, if you have a school without any school librarians, um, who's there to, to speak up for the kids who really can't speak up for themselves? If you have someone who is just kind of um, monitoring the library and not really, really curating a collection or maintaining that collection, um, that is something that just as easily, like you said, somebody walks into the library, takes the book off the shelf, and the book is never seen or heard from again. Um, and that's not standing up for what our, our readers, our students, our staff in our schools need. You're hearing Barbara Johnson here on Where We Live, a library media specialist at Jack Jackter Intermediate School in Colchester. She's the past president of the Connecticut Association of School Librarians. As we talk about the process uh, that should be in place in school districts, uh, if a member of the public objects to a particular uh, material in school, including a school book in the library, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So tell me more about the role of the Connecticut Association of School Librarians. And, you know, when we hear about these challenges and even bannings happening in other states, you know, some of the things that you're hearing from your membership. So I hear just a lot of concerns um, and we have a very um, robust and vibrant membership um, and, and an organization right now. Um, I'm proud to say that um, in, the, in my tenure of about four years um, and being in leadership in Castle, we've grown our membership to include almost all librarians 
um, that are employed in, in libraries. Um, and we prepare, right? And so as librarians, that's what we do. We curate resources. We make sure we have everything we need when we're ready. So if someone comes up to us and says, hey, I've got this going on, it's instantaneous. You know what? I know where to send you. I know what to give you. I know how to help you. And so I think that's the best thing we can do as, as an association, as Deborah and Sam um, mentioned uh, a school librarian you're likely the only one in your building and sometimes even in your district and so you don't always have that colleague to turn to but what we've done as an association is establish lines of communication listservs websites access very quickly to the information you need um, we're very um, active on social media in order to get the resources people need out to each other many times um, we don't come in and say, oh, we're going to go to Suffield, right? And, and you said you had um, some discussion at a Board of Ed meeting. Castle isn't going to come into to Suffield and say, look, all these librarians say that. We're going to talk to the school librarians in your district. We're going to give them the resources that we need. We're going to be that sounding board. We're going to take the emotion out of it. Many times, the people speaking in front of um, school boards in those viral videos, um, people coming to the library, asking for books to be removed, have this emotion behind it. They're parents, they're citizens, and they are concerned. They, they are concerned about the material they're reading. But again, that's not the facts. And I think that's what we do as librarians is we kind of bring down the emotion. We look at all sides of the conversation, which is the very purpose of having a library, whether it's public or school, is to bring in all sides of the conversation, have all viewpoints available. And by remo removing a single viewpoint, you're not doing your job as a library or a librarian. And you know that is our job, to speak up for these viewpoints, because just because that parent speaking up says it's not right for their family or their student. I have another family who it is 100% appropriate for, 100% needed for that student to identify with the author, to identify with the protagonist in that book, to identify with the person on the cover. Um, they need to see themselves in all libraries. And by removing books, based on LGBTQ plus issues or biopic authors or protagonists, we're, we're taking that side of the story out of the library. Uh, you'd mentioned that Suffield, uh, there's an elementary school in Brookfield, Connecticut, that's working through a book challenge now uh, over a, a graphic novel uh, drama. And the school's regulation for media removal requests calls for a report to be filed with the American Library Association and the Connecticut Library Association. In this case, the school librarian did contact the National ALA for guidance um, on the review process, approving the book circulation in response to the parent concern. The parent then took it to the Brookfield Board of Education, prompting a similar regulation to be drafted and a vote on that new protocol expected is expected next month. Uh, one difference is the board's proposed protocol, if approved, would make contacting the national ALA optional. And so when you hear that, I'm just wondering when we think about, uh, again, um, the avenues uh, to address uh, these concerns, policies in place, you know, why it should be important to have uh, the ALA involved uh, when we think about the right of, of students and communities uh, to have to access these materials. 
Yeah, regardless of what board policy says, as Deborah said, you should report this for um, statistics, for support, for um, getting your own personal um, informed decision making. And um, they can provide, along with CASEL, ALA, and the Office of Intellectual Freedom, just provides a, uh, a sounding board and help you to build that local voice. They're gonna tell you what happens next. So even if it's not, even if your district doesn't have a reconsideration policy, if someone comes to you or comes to your school or in your community is challenging materials used, um, you can, you should absolutely report this to ALA so that those statistics can be the most accurate they can be. Um, I feel like um, school library statistics are low because my hope is that those um, informal book um, reconsiderations are taken care of, again, at a very, let's just read the book and let me show you why I selected this. And so it never really gets escalated, but I would still report to the ALAOIF, um, Office of Intellectual Freedom, anytime you have um, something reconsidered or um, someone come to you with a, uh, like a, a concern or a question about materials, and Deborah maybe could weigh in about this or Sam, I would definitely seek out the help of ALA. Listen, I taught third grade and kindergarten. I, I taught technology for a very long time. I am not a lawyer. I, um, I went back to school because I loved kids. I loved the library. I loved being able to expand the minds and worlds of kids and not teach them what to think, but we teach them how to think, right? We teach them to consider all sides of the story. We, we let them become information detectives, as, as Deborah um, once said, it's important for um, librarians to be in schools. But when it comes to issues that um, are legal or of um, there are precedent where my decision could cause a, a precedent across the state, I would reach out to ALA, reach out to the Office of Intellectual Freedom and ask for advice and help. They can provide it. Uh, Sam Lee said earlier that uh, often school librarians are working in isolation. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and if uh, certain members would feel intimidated or fearful, fearful to reach out for that guidance. Yeah, so I think, um, librarians and, and some that I've had experience with, um, you know, your stereotypical librarian is maybe um, on the more quiet side who um, kind of wants to just enjoy um, sharing their love of reading and their um, love of books with, with children and, and, and young adults and kids. Um, and this definitely puts people outside their comfort level. Um, again, my collection that I've curated in my library is very personal and, and very valuable to me because it takes so much time for me to select the right sources. So I take six months to create a list of possibly 100 books that I would purchase for the next year. Um, if you're doing that alone, it can be very kind of overwhelming. Um, our association, the CLA, the Castle, um, the Connecticut State Library, we've really um, tried to build this ecosystem at the urging of ALA. You build this ecosystem, they're calling it, it's collaboration between public libraries, 
um, uh, school libraries, state libraries, so that we can all support each other. Um, and I think the best thing that we can do is, is have common conversations and, and be able to reach out to someone when um, they are struggling or when you hear something's going on in Suffield or something's happening in Brookfield. We, we're not gonna walk in and say, listen, let us do this for you. We really wanna walk in and say, what do you need help with? What can I take off your plate? What can I get for you? <laughs> what can I do for you? As if they were you know, just walking into my office, even though you know, they're you know, 65 miles away in a different town. Um, I think that we've worked really hard as an association. I think all library associations, whether it be CLA or the Connecticut State Library Association or, or, or the School Library Association, of breaking down those silos. Um, you know, the one thing we've definitely taken away from our time in COVID is that Zoom meetings and face-to-face -face, um, is very valuable. And <clears throat> While we have 400 members and it's difficult to get them all together in the same place, we have regular meetings where we can bounce ideas off of each other and see each other in a Google Meet or a Zoom and, and be able to feel connected even though we are in very different schools. You've been hearing Barbara Johnson here on Where We Live. She's a library media specialist at Jack Jachter Intermediate School in Colchester and the past president of the Connecticut Association of School Librarians. Barbara, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live. Coming up, we talked to a local teen services librarian about uh, the books that teens and young adults are interested in, including graphic novels, some that have been the focus of requests to remove from the public. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking to librarians today about a spike in requests from the public to remove to remove some books deemed offensive to some. My next guest is a teen services librarian. Mary Richardson joins us on the phone. She's a librarian at Simsbury Public Library and co-host of the podcast Book Jam. Mary, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand that your library is also working on a reconsideration request right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so it's, our process is pretty similar to what Sam was talking about earlier. Uh, you can have a verbal challenge, uh, which is just someone saying, I don't like this book. And you're like, okay, cool. Um, and then there's a form for a request for consideration. Uh, someone fills that out. They put all their information in it. Uh, it talks about why they don't like the book. Uh, if they've read the book in its entirety or not. Um, and then that goes to our library director who then uh, looks at book reviews, if it's on list, um, you know, it just also will probably read the book um, and have a conversation, like the book we have in, in question right now, like we've had a conversation about it or two. She writes a letter, responds, sends it back to the patron. Uh, and then if the patron isn't happy with that and still wants to try and get this removed, uh, they can come to the library board uh, with their complaints. So we're in the middle of that process right now. And at the Simsbury Public Library, are these book challenges popping up uh, more recently? 
Um, I would say so. I was actually kind of surprised when we got a book challenge. I'm like, is this Connecticut? I'm originally from Georgia, so I kind of I expect that when I'm down there, uh, but not so much up here. Uh, and it seems to be like this one book, this one graphic novel, Gender Queer, that is, you know, I, it's not, we're not the only one. There are other libraries across the state that have also gotten, you know, a request for consideration uh, on this. And you mentioned Genderqueer, which is a graphic novel. It's been challenged nationally and including in your town, Mary. Uh, producer Katie Pellico spoke with your co-host of the book jam, Marissa. She's at the uh, neighboring uh, library at Avon, uh, who told us she got four calls in one day about this particular graphic novel. Only one of those generated a formal request and the decision by the library was to keep it in the teen room. Now the recommended reading age varies for genderqueer between the ages of 15 to 18, uh, but the author, Maya Kobabe, told the Washington Post it was intended for quote, high school and above. But Mary, when you think about the patrons that you're serving, including children and teens, can you tell us more about in your view, getting the right book into the right hands is so important. Oh, totally. I mean, I think Barbara spoke to this a little bit with collection development. We spend a lot of time selecting books that we think will be, you know, good in our collections. And um, Gender Career is one of those books, too, that I remember when I bought it for the library I was working at in 2019 when it came out, I was like, oh, this book is great. I know a couple of our, our readers that will really appreciate this. And it's the kind of book, too, that, like, it's a window and it's a doorway. Uh, we talk about that a lot in libraries. Books are windows and doors. So, like, you read a book and you engage with it and you see a reflection of yourself possibly in that book. Or you see someone else's story that creates some empathy that you maybe didn't have for that person. And Genderqueer talks about, you know, this author's non-binary gender journey um, as well as trying to figure out um, aerosexual orientation. And it's it's a great book. Like I had to reread it when all this came up. So I, I read it in 2019 when it came out and I was just like, yeah, this is an awesome book. Um, so yeah. And so we try and make sure that we have those books for those kids because we do have kids that come in and ask for like, I've had kids ask me like, where are the gay books? And I'm just like, uh, well, let's, let's, let's pare it down. Are you looking for graphic novels? Are you looking for fiction? Do you want nonfiction? You know, how can we help you today? That's part of my job is connecting books to readers, uh, no matter the age. Sam Lee is still with us. She's chair of Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee. She's also a librarian. Sam, in just the few minutes we have left, talk more with us about why graphic novels like Genderqueer seem to be more vulnerable to these book challenges recently. Well, it's it's the nature of it, right? Whereas like in uh, novels, you see words on the page, and it's up to the reader to imagine what's going on. In graphic novels, you have depictions of scenes for you. It's the author and the artist working together. Sometimes they're one and the same person in painting a picture, quite literally, of what's going on. And in the case of genderqueer, um, there are images in there that are a bit more mature, that um, taken as a whole and part of the story it's beautiful it's about self-discovery um self-understanding um but taking out of context it could be very jarring for some people um and that's not to diminish the quality of the book um but it it can be upsetting for some people 
in uh, for other people, it could be absolutely reaffirming to um, see these depictions, to understand that experience, to empathize with them, and also not feel as alone. Um, our LGBT community um, has felt in historically uh, underappreciated, sidelined, and to have these affirming titles to validate their ex lived experiences is important um, to making sure that they are uh, respect it, that they are with us, that they continue to be with us and enrich our lives by uh, telling us what their experiences are. Marilyn tweeted at us that she agrees with the importance of all books, but what she'd like to see is a guide to the content. This way, as a parent, I can decide if my children are mature enough to read the book or if I need to read or discuss the content at that time. And so, Sam, what's your take on that? So I'm a little hesitant when it comes to guides, um, because when it comes to labeling books, um, we veer into territory where uh, librarians are then tasked with making uh, uh, value judgments on the content. And that's not what we do. We provide access, we provide open access for people to pick and choose for themselves. Librarians are there to guide them, but slapping on a label on a book um, uh, sort of it robs patrons of that ability for exploration, uh, for understanding, for critical thinking. So. Um, Parents who are concerned, absolutely consult your uh, librarian and figure out what uh, titles might be appropriate. But I, I veer away from um, from uh, putting a sticker on a book and saying uh, this might be more appropriate for one child over another. Um, especially when it comes to maturity. Some kids are more mature than others. So while a book might be recommended for uh, fifth grade and up, you might have the fourth or third grader who can handle that and um, separating it out and um, essentially shaming that book does a disservice to that learner. Mary Richardson is still with us. Uh, Mary, did you wanna uh, respond to that? We've got about uh, less than a minute. Oh yeah, sure. Sam made a really great point. And, but the other thing is kids are great readers and they self-select for themselves too. Like they're pretty good at figuring out what, what's appropriate for them. Um, and then, you know, obviously they're going to read up a little bit too, and that's fine. That's great. We want to encourage critical thinking skills. That's Mary Richardson, the Teen Services Librarian at Cemetery Public Library, also co-host of the podcast Book Jam. Mary, thank you for your time today. Thank you. And Sam Lee was here with us, Chair of Connecticut Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee, also Head of Reference Services at Enfield Public Library. Sam, thank you for your time and your work. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.